You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This episode features CBMW President Denny Burke. He recently spoke at our Together for the Gospel pre-conference on the Nashville Statement, which was released last fall. The title of his talk is Male and Female, He Created Them, Thinking Biblically About Transgenderism. It's no secret that the church's deepest commitments are often clarified and expressed in the midst of its greatest crises. Time and again throughout history, assaults on the faith have led to clarifications of the faith. And sometimes the challenges become so acute and so fundamental that faithfulness to Christ requires explicit declaration of biblical conviction in the face of error. That's what the Nashville Statement is all about. That's what we're here this morning talking about. In his own time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer believed that the church in Germany was facing that kind of a threat. Jill Caratini has described the situation this way, and I want you to listen to this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer declared a state of status confessionis for the church under Nazi Germany. Status confessionis, literally a state of confessing, is a dire situation in which the church must stand up for the integrity of the gospel and the authority of, God, of the God it confesses. For Bonhoeffer and others, the Nazification of the church was an issue so threatening to the veracity of their confession of Christ that no dissimulation or concession was possible. Bonhoeffer recognized that the Nazi persecution of Jews demanded a serious response from the church. But more so, he recognized that the church was not only to bandage the victims under the wheel, but to jam a spoke into the wheel itself and bring the engine of injustice to a halt. Confessing Christ was a theology that could not be held without obligation. When we think about what Bonhoeffer faced, when we think about the issues that we are facing today and discussing this morning, I want to ask you the question, is our situation any less dire? To be sure, we're not facing anything like Nazi Germany in our moment. But that doesn't mean that we aren't facing a dire threat to the church's integrity and witness. And the threat that we face and that we've heard about from Dr. Duncan and Dr. Moeller this morning, the threat that we face is not due merely to influences from outside the church. But now increasingly we're finding out there are influences within the church. And it's not just like, as Dr. Duncan said, the children of the next generation who don't agree with us. Even within the evangelical movement, there is now an emergence of a lack of clarity on these issues. Just one example. Many of you may have seen in 2015 uh, Mark Yarhouse's book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Until very recently, it was the most comprehensive response to the transgender question by someone who identifies with the evangelical movement. This book made Yarhouse the go-to guy on this issue. If you remember back in 2015, when Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner, Christianity Today had Mark Yarhouse write the feature story. Even on the Gospel Coalition website, it said that this book marks a step forward in Christian engagement with gender issues. And yet, Yarhouse says that if you have a gender-confused child, Cross-dressing might be the best prescription for that child. For adults dealing with transgender feelings, 
Yarhouse argues that sex change surgery might in some cases be the best prescription for them. Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you that if Christians are unable to discern that cross-dressing children and sex change are out of step with the gospel, then we indeed are in a state of confession. This is a status confessionis moment that we are in, and it's precisely why we needed a statement like the Nashville statement when we made it. Before I get into the heart of my discussion this morning about transgender, I want to define to you these terms and what, what I mean by what I'm saying. The term transgender, as many of you know, just refers, it's a catch-all term that refers to the many ways that people might perceive their gender identity to be out of sync with their biological sex. It's typically what people mean by transgender. Until recently, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is like the Bible for psychiatrists, they classified that experience as gender identity disorder. In 2013, the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, removed um, the gender identity disorder from its list of diagnoses and replaced it with a term, gender dysphoria. How many of you have heard gender dysphoria? Okay, so you're familiar with that. They did this in part to remove the stigma from the transgender experience so that transgender people wouldn't have to say that they had a psychological disorder. And so instead, now, through the DSM, it just focuses on those people who experience dys dysphoria. And dysphoria is just mental distress. So if your gender identity is out of sync with your biological sex, that's not viewed as a problem anymore unless you're experiencing mental distress, and then they try to help you relieve the mental distress, but the out-of-syncness is not a problem to be fixed, necessarily. So this is, this is all changed. What I want to do for the rest of my time is to make the case for why the Nashville Statement meets the need of our moment when it comes to the challenge of transgenderism and the related condition that they call gender dysphoria. Now, I want to give you some biblical reasons why you should... I think you and your ministry should consider adopting the Nashville Statement or something like it, okay? Adopting a statement that clearly puts your flag in the ground for your, your ministry. And the main reason is this. It's because the statement, the Nashville Statement, reflects what I believe every faithful Christian must believe about the distinction between male and female. Okay, so on the transgender question... It's telling us about the distinction between male and female, and we can summarize that under three headings. The distinction between male and female is biological, the distinction is social, and the distinction is good. So I'm going to explain to you what I mean by that from the Bible, and then I'm going to connect it to the statement. But the first text I want you to look at is, is Genesis 1, in verses 26 and 27, and it's the, the, the distinction between male and female is biological. God's word says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now this verse is familiar to you, but I want to point out just a couple of things. Notice in verse 26, the accent is on what the man and woman have in common. They're both created in God's image. They are both given the responsibility to rule over God's good creation. 
They're to be, as it were, God's vice regents, ruling on his behalf over the world that God has made. But in verse 27, the accent is on difference. It says, God created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. In these words, we find that the divine image bearers come in two distinct genres, male and female. And it's precisely here that the biblical revelation stands up against the aims and purposes of the transgender moment. What do I mean by this? Well, it's not that there's a real controversy today, at least at the popular level, about there being a difference between male and female. The controversy is about how to define that difference. What makes male and female different? Is it a biological thing, a self-concept, or is it something else altogether? And a while back, I received this heartbreaking letter from two parents of a transgender child, a son who had grown up with gender-conflicted feelings. And as an adult, their son, nevertheless, he got married, and he got married to a woman. He had children with this woman. And after being married for a number of years, he decided to end his marriage and to transition his appearance to that of a female. And eventually, he underwent so-called sex change surgery. There's really no such thing as a sex change surgery, but so-called sex change surgery. And ended his marriage and, and made the transition. Parents wrote to me about this. And they told me that they support the transition. And they think that I need to change my views to support this kind of thing as well. But they said that they support the transition and the surgery because they believe their son's transgender identity is the result of his brain sex being mismatched with his biological sex. They believe his mind has already always been female, even though his body has always been male. Because the brain, in their words, is the most, human, uh, the most important human sex organ. They believe that he was simply born with the wrong genitals, their words as well. And so they're writing to me as from a Christian perspective, they claim, and they say that Scripture is silent about the biological factors that distinguish male from female and that there is no scriptural authority for prioritizing genital anatomy over brain structure and function. And so for that reason, they feel like their child's body needed to be transformed through surgery so that it would match his mind. They support their child's gender reassignment surgery even though it cost him his marriage and his family. Now, these parents are holding to and advocating for a perspective that psychologists call a brain sex theory. The brain sex theory says that our brains script us towards male or female behaviors and dispositions. But sometimes our brains, our brain's gender doesn't match up to that of our biological sex. That's what this theory says. And when that's the case, proponents of brain sex theory believe that what a person thinks about him or herself should trump any other consideration. And for our purposes, it would trump what God has revealed through biological sex. And so these parents wrote to me and they're saying, and I'm just going to quote to you from their letter. They say, you have chosen without any scriptural authority that I can find to prioritize genital anatomy over brain structure and function in determining sex and gender. 
Their claim that they wrote to me about is the same claim that you are hearing more and more in popular culture. The people in your churches are hearing this too. And they are being told that brain structures determine a person's sex and gender, not their reproductive anatomy. And many Christians are beginning to believe this. I'd wager you've probably met some of them. But I want you to notice what Genesis 1.27 says. Look at it. Or excuse me, 128. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Is this claim true that there's no scriptural authority for prioritizing biological anatomy over brain structure and function? Well, what does God say to this first male and female? In verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. It's the creation mandate. The creation mandate is procreation within the covenant of marriage. You tell me, does God use the terms male and female to refer to brain structures? We don't procreate with our brains. Or do male and female refer to differences in the reproductive systems of the man and the woman? The way that everyone has read this text for 2,000 years is actually the, the right way. You know the answer to this question. Ryan Anderson says it this way. The fundamental conceptual distinction between a male and a female is the organism's organization for sexual reproduction. That's certainly what's reflected in nature, and it's certainly what's reflected in Moses' creation account when he uses the terms male and female. That means that if a body says male, but the brain is saying female, the brain is wrong. In a fallen world where the noetic effects of sin still prevail, what we think about ourselves can and often is mistaken. And that's certainly the case with the transgender experience. The distinction between male and female is, first of all, biological. And the biological distinction in view has to do with the body's organization for reproduction, quite apart from any consideration of brain structure or a person's self-concept, whatever that might, may be. This is how we said it in Article 5 of the Nashville Statement. We affirm that the differences between male and female Reproductive structures are integral to God's design for self-conception as male or female. We deny that physical anomalies or psychological conditions nullify the God-appointed link between biological sex and self-conception as male or female. If this is true, then there are massive implications for how you're supposed to minister the gospel to people dealing with gender-confused feelings. And you're going to be seeing more and more of them because there's no taboo on it anymore. It means that you can tell those people when they come to you on the authority of God's word that their body is not lying to them. A person's maleness or femaleness is not socially constructed or self-constructed, but God-constructed. Sex is not something that is assigned at birth, it is something that is revealed by God in his special and distinct design of male and female bodies. The world is telling gender-confused people that if they perceive themselves 
to have a gender identity at odds with their bodily identity, then the mind takes precedence over the body. The world's telling them even to take steps to conform the body to the gender-confused mind rather than conform the gender-confused mind to what is clearly revealed by God through the body. That means dressing up the body of a minor child in clothing associated with the opposite sex, then so be it. If that means reshaping the body through amputation of healthy sexual organs, then so be it. The fallen mind trumps the creator's design of the body. And what God has revealed about maleness and femaleness through the body can and must be set aside. But that lie is precisely what we have to prepare people to resist. By pointing them to Scripture and to nature, both of which teach that the distinction between male and female is, first of all, biological, according to the body's organization for reproduction. The second thing is this. The distinction between male and female is social. I want you to look at Genesis 2 quickly. In verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up at its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, among many other things, this text reveals that there is both a sexual complementarity and gender complementarity embedded into God's good creation. Now, what do I mean by that? There's a conventional distinction between sex and gender. Sex refers to one's biological organization for reproduction, like we just talked about. Gender refers to the social manifestation of one's biological sex. Sex is a bo physical, bodily reality. Gender, in common parlance, is a socio-cultural reality. And so the spirit of the age today is telling you that the relationship between gender and sex is purely conventional. It's in no way essential. It's telling you that gender is a socio-cultural reality that's a social construct. That is a set of customs and behaviors that one learns, but which one has to unlearn. And it has no essential intrinsic relation to biological sex. And that's why they would argue that sometimes people, people, a person's gender identity doesn't match their bodily identity. There's no intrinsic in, in essential connection between the body and a social manifestation of the body's reproductive capacities. But is this what Scripture teaches? Well, if you're reading Genesis 2, the answer is no. Verse 18, Moses uses the word helper corresponding to Adam. And that term designates a social role for Eve within her marriage to Adam. A role that is inextricably linked to her biological sex. Adam's creation before Eve designates a social role within his marriage to Eve, a role that is 
inextricably linked to his biological sex. He is to be the leader, protector, and provider within his marriage covenant. And those social roles within the covenant of marriage are not only creational realities, but they're also commanded in Scripture. You can look at Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, or 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. There are biological distinctions between male and female that God intends to encode social distinctions within the covenant of marriage. And that's gender. Now, some people will hear that and they'll object. They'll say, well, wait a minute. Those are covenantal obligations that apply narrowly to marriage, not creational distinctions that apply to every male and every female, regardless of their marital status. To which we would want to say, well, that's true and not true. Okay, yes and no. It's correct and incorrect. Yes, headship and helpership are covenantal obligations that apply narrowly to marriage. That, that's true. No, it is not correct to deny creational distinctions that make male and female fitted for covenantal roles. There are creational differences of temperament and disposition between males and females. Look at your little boys and your little girls. They're different. And those differences have social consequences. And those differences must be celebrated, not denigrated or ignored or dismissed as a social construct. I have so much more to say about that, but I can't for the sake of time. But what does this mean if it's true? It means that God has so made the world that there is a normative holy connection between biological sex and gender identity. God has so made the world that there is a normative, holy connection between biological sex and gender identity. This is how we expressed it in Article 7 of the Nashville Statement. We say this, we affirm that self-conception as male or female should be defined by God's holy purposes in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture. We deny that adopting a transgender self-conception is consistent with God's holy purposes in creation and redemption. When someone adopts a, gender, adopts a gender identity at odds with their bodily identity, they are tearing asunder something that God has joined together. That a male body should coincide with a male concept and that a female body should coincide with a female self-concept. That's how God designed the first man and first woman, and it's how he designed every man and woman since. And even though in a fallen world, some people will feel that connection to be broken, we don't deny that. We don't deny that people will feel dysphoric and experience distress in a fallen world. We don't deny the experience. The question is, how are we going to define the experience? So we don't deny that in a fallen world. We know that God aims to restore that connection in the new creation. There will be no transgender identities in the new creation. Men will know themselves as men. Women will know themselves as women, even though there won't be marriage in the age to come. So, so the distinction between male and female is biological. The distinction is social. And finally, the distinction between male and female is good. 
And I want to direct you to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'll just read you verses 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, where does Paul get this idea that everything created by God is good? Is he just pulling this out of the air? He's just reading his Bible. And in particular, he's reading the same text that we're reading, Genesis, where it says throughout the six days of creation, God looked at what he had made and he said that it was good. And then after God created the first male and female bodies, what did he say? He says, very good. And so now Paul affirms that what was true about male and female design before the fall Paul, in 1 Timothy, is now saying it's still true about male and female design after the fall. That means that even though God's good design in creation may be marred by the fall and by sin, God's good design in male and female is not erased by the fall and by sin. What that means for us is that our appraisal of male and female difference in this fallen world must be the same as God's appraisal of male and female difference. If God says that it's good, we have no right to say that it's bad. The way we said it in the Nashville statement is this way. We affirm that divinely ordained differences between male and female reflect God's original creation design and are meant for human good and human flourishing. We deny that such differences are a result of the fall or are a tragedy to be overcome. It means that your pastoral counsel to a gender-confused child or an adult must always be aimed at their good and flourishing. And their good and flourishing must be defined by what God's Word says their good and flourishing is. Not by LGBT propagandists who aim to efface and destroy God's design through destructive hormone therapies and so-called sex change surgeries. Last week, Dr. Michael Laidlaw reviewed a book about a 17-year-old transgender reality show star whose name I'm not going to mention. And it's a 17-year-old, it's a minor child. In the review, Dr. Laidlaw points out some of the misinformation about the transgender experience. In one section of the review, he talks about the sex change surgery that this minor child is currently contemplating. Keep in mind, this child is already being treated with puberty blockers, so his growth has already been stunted. He's likely already been rendered infertile for life. Also keep in mind that this child suffers from depression, Nevertheless, with the support of his parents and health care providers, he's now exploring this surgery. And I'm just, I, I, I struggled whether I should read this to you, but I'm going to assume we're mainly adults in here. This is not a Sunday morning church service. So I'm just going to read to you this medical doctor's description of the surgery this 17-year-old is considering. What type of surgical procedures is this child considering for the treatment of gender dysphoria? Typically, surgery turning a male into a trans female involves dissecting the penis, turning the skin inside out, placing it into a surgically created cavity to create a false vagina. 
After surgery, a dilator has to be placed in this artificial vagina to keep it from collapsing. But this child has a problem. Since he still has a small child size anatomy because of puberty blockers, he does not have enough skin to line the false vagina. Potential remedies are sewing in a section of intestine along with the penis skin to make the false vagina. In one episode, the child is actually offered two different surgeries. One surgery to create the false vagina and the second surgery two months later to attempt to form the labia. The need for two dangerous surgeries instead of one is directly related to the effects of puberty blockers. Puberty blockers, standard treatment today for children with gender dysphoria. If you think the spirit of Moloch died with the ancient Near East, think again. Here we have parents and healthcare providers prescribing the amputation of healthy body parts in service of an ideology that is completely foreign to nature and to Scripture. And they are doing so saying that what? That it's good for him to do this. The conviction they have about pursuing these remedies is that it's good for him to efface his body in this way. You tell me, what is good? To conform a troubled mind to a healthy body or to conform a healthy body to a troubled mind through destructive surgeries? Is this child's male body lying to him about his gender identity or is his mind lying to him about his gender identity? When parents in your church come to you heartbroken over their child's experience of gender confusion, do you know what you're going to say to them? Are you going to have the clarity and conviction to stand against the soul-destroying propaganda telling them to block their child's puberty and perhaps even to put them under the knife? Speak especially to pastors, anybody in ministry. If you would be a faithful ministry of King Jesus, you must have the clarity and conviction to stand in that moment. And you do it because you love them and you want what's good for that child. And because you know that love, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, always rejoices in the truth. You don't love them by telling them what they want to hear. According to the propaganda, you love them by steering them away from these destructive therapies. If you love that child and those parents, you will grieve and you will weep with them over their child's distress. That's what you'll do. And then you will point them toward the path to life, which is the gospel. And then you will point them to wholeness and to healing, which means, in very practical terms, you will always encourage such sufferers to resolve their self-conflict in a way that affirms and celebrates their biological sex, not in a way that attempts to destroy it. That's what you will do. This is how we said it in the Nashville Statement in Article 11. We affirm our duty to speak the truth in love at all times, including when we speak to or about one another as male or female. We deny any obligation to speak in such ways that dishonor God's design of his image bearers as male and female. If ever there were a need for clarity and conviction on this question, it is now. Because this is a challenge not merely for those experiencing transgender conflicts, it's a challenge for every single Christian 
trying to be faithful in the face of mounting external pressures. We're not talking this morning about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. We're talking about what it means to be a male or female image bearer of Almighty God. To get those questions wrong is to walk away from Jesus, not to Jesus. And there's no more central concern than that. So my hope and prayer this morning, the aim of this pre-conference today is that God would give us unity of purpose and of heart to stand together on these things for what Scripture and nature say. I do think the situation is dire, but I do not think it is hopeless. Not by a long shot is it hopeless. Our time, this time, I believe it is a status confessionis. And God is calling us to meet this challenge. And I believe that he'll do it. Resources like Danvers Audio are made possible by the financial support of our individual and church partners. If you or someone you know has benefited from the ministry of CBMW, please consider becoming a partner today by visiting cbmw.org forward slash partnerships. Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio.